We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. Hello. Welcome to episode 25 of the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. I'm Dustin Redazel. And joining me is a man who's heading south of the border. It's Tommy Cooksey. There it is. There it is. It, it, it feels like I'm doing something completely illegal. Am I wrong? It's, You're going to Mexico, right? We are going to Mexico, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's impossible to think that without singing Toby Keith. What happens down in Mexico? I think it's Toby See, Keith, isn't it? See, I was thinking uh, Tim McGraw. And that's why God made Mexico. <laughs> Oddly, we both went to uh, mid-90s country singers. But yeah, yeah, dude. We're taking, we, were, we were in it. We were in. Then we were out. Then we were like, we're vaccinated, so we're in. So we're going to go. We're going to take the kids, and we got the in-laws. So um, I'll have a story to share with you guys about preparing for... Uh, for this trip, uh, I think it. I think it's on theme, based on some therapy yesterday. But I'll, I'll save that for the for the real conversation. Well, I appreciate you rescheduling your trip to fit in this very important podcast episode. Yeah, I'm missing we, a day of vacation. Yeah, for this. Yeah, say you're welcome, listeners. Five star <laughs> review. <laughs> so we have a guest today, Zach Westerbeck. Uh, he is a speaker and author. Um, and he's a friend. Zach and I worked together at Cisco. Uh, Tommy, I don't know if, did you and Zach cross paths back then? Maybe like in passing, but I don't think we ever really spent much substantial time talking. So it's gonna be nice to officially dig in with them. So Zach, I'll let you do a little bit of an intro here, but I want to say first, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, it's been awesome watching your uh, personal life progression um, through social media, through LinkedIn. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. I've seen you speaking at colleges. Uh, and I have, I thought I would finish in time. I'm about halfway through You're Not Alone, and I've been loving it. And I'm sure we'll talk about the book too. But uh, I've mentioned a lot of things you do. When people ask you the American question, what do you do? How do you answer that? First off, I love that you just labeled that the American question, because as an advocate, that is like one of the biggest things that I'm trying to address is how like work first culture and working hard mentality and working yourself to exhaustion is a very American, like in identifying yourself by your vocation is a very American thing. So, and by the way, love this country, love capitalism. I'm all for it. But like, as an advocate, we got to find the balance. We got to find the balance somewhere. So I love that. Um, But yeah, I mean, to your point, I'm a former Cisco employee. I was an account manager at Cisco for close either either seven or close to seven years. Um, 
before I got hit with that LR, which was the perfect opportunity and excuse for me to do. It's funny. We were sharing the story about the, uh, the Parm story for me to jump into what I was always meant to do. So the way that I introduce myself is I am a professional speaker. I'm a mental health advocate. I'm a college success coach. And then I'm the author of the mental health book, You're Not Alone, which is a guide for 18 to 24 year olds to overcome anxiety and depression. It's everything that I wish I would have known back in the Raleigh days when we were hanging out um, prior to the onset of my uh, brain disorder, which we uh, I'm sure we'll dive into. But yeah, that's that's what I do. That's that's what I do now full time and, and loving it. I'm surprised to hear you call it mental health instead of brain health. That's right. Well, we see, I, I flip the script normally on the listeners at a certain point. I've got a little punchline for, for changing it from mental health to brain health. But yeah, you beat me to the punch. It's I'm all about that. Well, I thought that was, uh, and to give perspective to the listeners, in You're Not Alone, one of the things Zach covers is smashing the stigma around mental health. And an easy way to do that uh, and I should probably not do this. Like, I'm sure you do it much better, but is let's first refer to it as brain health and treat the brain with the same care that we treat the body. Uh, and I, I think that is an awesome way to dig into a lot of these topics, but I, I was hoping we could just kind of start with your story. It's what launches the book. And I think gives a powerful grounding to the rest of the conversation. So tell us what happened in those days in Raleigh and what was kind of your awakening to your own anxiety. Yeah, a great question. Um, and I really appreciate like the fact that I can tell that you've read the port, like you're, you're honest. You're like, okay, I'm halfway through. I've really absorbed the part that I've read. And I appreciate that because Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people try to make the distinction between like the mind and the brain. But the reality is, is that every part of the brain has a function. And we know that now through various brain scan technology that there's different sectors of the brain that light up when we're thinking, when we're listening, when we're seeing, when we're tasting, um, when we're feeling. And that is everything begins and ends in the brain. So um really starting to look at it as a tangible organ, just like we do our hearts, which obviously I talk about in the book um, and treating it with that, with the same level of respect, if not more. And for me, when I moved down to Raleigh, I was not treating my brain with respect. So for the quick background on the, on to the listeners, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, had a great childhood growing up. So in terms of like the various factors, and we can talk about this here in a little bit, of like maybe family traumatic events, whether that be some form of physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, verbal abuse, I didn't experience any of that. I grew up in a loving household, and outside of maybe some of the normal uh, bullying, teasing that kids do with each other, like I, I, I can't complain about my childhood. Played sports, hung out with friends, went to school. Graduated, went on to attend Purdue University, joined a, a fraternity. I'm a Sigma Chi, so I was a part of the Greek community, had had friends there, graduated with a degree in economics. So you could see my mind was completely in a different place. Um, and when I graduated, felt blessed to move down to Raleigh, North Carolina to start working for Cisco Systems, you know, world-renowned company, 
cutting edge technology, depending on who you ask. Some people think we're a dinosaur. Others will say that, you know, we're one of the best places you could possibly work at. I enjoyed it. So I get down there. I'm in the early and career program and I'm, I'm loving it for about the first 10 months of the program. And it's funny because we had, we had met each other by then and I was living with Voikin at the time or Fiddy, I should say. And yeah, just had all the, the, the pieces in place, had the friends, was exercising, was working, um, you know, for Cisco, learning a ton. So I, I, I felt like I was in a really good place. But right at about the 10 month mark, things started to change with the way that my brain functioned. And I remembered, I, you know, I'm, I'm waking up with, with a pounding heart, like really pounding, like almost like picture yourself after a dead sprint. That's how I was waking up. So I'm waking up with this pounding heart. I, I don't know why this is happening, like, like pulsing headache, beating heart, sweaty palms, dry mouth, racing thoughts. And I'm very alarmed by what I'm feeling. I don't like it. And I'm like, okay, I'm new down here. I don't know what's going on with my brain. Um, but I think that I can change this and just flip it back. In my mind, this was going to be a quick fix. And this is kind of what I was alluding to. And I'm a very open book. I talk about this with the students. Um, for me, like, I feel like I was a huge socializer, loved to party. So when I drank, I drank to the extreme when I was partying. Um, and then I also indulged a ton in cannabis. Like I was, I was the kid in college that smoked every single day. So I thought that I just wore my brain out. I'm like, okay, you need to de detoxify your brain and your body. And this is going to reset your brain. You just did four years of college. This early career program isn't doing you any favors. You know how it is social life after work. And so yeah. um, my plan was go to Cisco, then go to the gym, sit in the steam room, sweat out all the toxins in my body. I was going to do that for 31 days in January of 2016. And that was going to reset my brain. Like that was going to bring me back to quote unquote old Zach. No more pounding heart, no more racing thoughts, no more sweaty palms, no more dry mouth. And so that's what I did for 31 days and I got results. The only challenge is that it wasn't the results that I was looking for. And by the end of the month, not only had the symptoms I just told you all about intensify and get worse that I now know uh, is and was anxiety, but a second symptom had crept in and that was depression. And I remember just because it's podcast form and not a speech, I, I feel like I can I can tell you all this. I just remembered a sinking feeling in my stomach about the third week into January because I was hitting my stride, right? Like I was doing all the right things on paper. Like I was truly just going to work, just going to the gym, just sitting in the steam room and coming home. No partying, no cannabis, no drinking, nothing. And then I was really laser focused on what I was eating. And so I'm, I'm in week three and things are getting worse. So I'm starting to really like freak out, but I'm, I'm kind of in denial. I'm like, it's like one of those things where I was telling myself like, oh, I just have to get over the hump. Like, that's what this is. This is your brain resetting itself. This is your body resetting itself. Push through this time period, stay disciplined. And come February 1, 
you're going to be good. But when February 1 rolled around, I was not good. I was arguably 10 times worse than I was at the start of the month because at least in, to a certain extent, cannabis was um, – it was it was doling the senses. It was doling what was going mm-hmm. on in my brain. It was almost like there was a, a, a fog over my brain that um, getting high at night made it more tolerable the next day. So when I pulled those substances out, kind of those safety blankets, it was like pulling back the curtain. And I'm like, whoa. There's a lot going on back here that I knew nothing about. Yeah, I am I am familiar with that feeling. Uh, you know, I I was probably living a similar lifestyle around the same time, uh, and drinking every night. And when I eventually, a couple of years later, was getting a handle on all that, emotions just bubbling up on me at like unexpected times, I didn't realize how much of myself had been tampered down. I'm curious, you, there might not be like a scientific answer to this. How much of, you mentioned those, like the, the lifestyle in college and young professionalism. How much of the depression do you think is linked to that lifestyle? And how much of it do you think is probably coming for you anyway until you begin to understand yourself a little bit more clearly and how like what your brain actually needs to be healthy does that make sense it's a beautiful question um i mean the answer is absolutely so there's two it's because it's kind of a two-fold question but the the, i want to address the second part and then maybe you can remind me again exactly how you asked the, the first part but the second part of understanding yourself and what you need gets down to a deeper understanding of brain health in terms of being able to unpack um, past traumas, anything that you've been through in the past, understanding your family genetics. So the way that we might talk about heart disease, cancer, diabetes is the same way that we need to be sitting down with our kids um, saying, hey, mom has depression. This is what she does to take care of it. It's a medical issue. Dad has anxiety. These are the reasons why the amygdala, the almond shaped part of the brain that deals with fight or flight is just a little more turned up in dad. It's science. It's not a deficiency or a weakness in who I am as a person. It's a part of my brain. Yeah. Tommy, you probably got that dude. Oh man. As, <laughs> as you're saying that, like I get the, like the, the hair standing up on my back, dude. It's uh, I don't have a hairy back, but you know, <laughs> I'm not like dusty. I, I love uh, that. <laughs> Can I just uh, interject? I'm the only male in my family without hair on my back. I've, I've born that proudly. I'm 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 proud to know you. I'm proud to be the only know the only redazel. Um, dude, Zach. So yeah, so you know, I think first and foremost, dude. Thanks for sharing that, man. I mean, it does take someone very who's done a lot of work. And uh, is very comfortable and has and has unpacked that stuff to be able to share that to an audience of one or an audience of a million. Like it's it's really cool that that you've done this this work. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think for for me and and I I've definitely absolutely struggled with anxiety, um, OCD for sure. A lot of the stuff you're saying in your book, I'm looking back on 
18-year-old me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no wonder you would cry two to three times a quarter when work would pile up. Mm. You wouldn't you wouldn't know what I wouldn't know it was happening, but it would like just well up, well up, well up, big cry, then get back to it. And it was like, I don't like to get to that point. Yep. But but something else you mentioned in the book that I just I've described it in therapy myself. And it was weird, almost weird to hear someone else explain it the same way because it it was like, oh, that's it is the, the feeling of like a fog rolling in mm-hmm. or like a cloud coming over. And I can very distinctly remember many situations. And I don't, I, it's not like I'm, you're ever done with it. Mm-hmm. It's constant work. Like if you just stopped working out, you would gain weight. Your heart would have to work harder. So you're with your brain. It's the same thing. You keep putting in the work, you keep, you stay conscious of it, but I could, it's almost like I could look out. It'd be like, a Sunday and I finish binge drinking over the weekend and Monday's creeping in and I can see the fog rolling in and I'm like, yes. I know. And I start to, I start to be shorter with people. I start to sleep worse. I'm, I'm much more irritable. And by day three, I'm like, I'm in it and yep. I'm saying things to like, you know, my girlfriend at the time that I'm like that. I don't really feel that. But in the moment I had to say it because I couldn't stop myself from saying it. And then you would, I could feel it would, it's just like a pimple would pop. It's done and it, it, it sees its way out. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not depression. That's just I hit a rough patch. Because depression has connotated you're broken. Right. There's something wrong with you. And once I was able to recognize, like you outlined in the book, like, yeah, the, a lot of people deal with this. Oh, yeah. A lot of people <laughs> in some form or fashion. It's like, well, okay, great. Now I get it. Now I understand. I don't want that to happen. So let me go seek out therapy and work on this on this process. So it was really, to me, it was almost eerie as I was reading it in the book. And I'm like, I've almost used these words exactly. Um, so I'm right there with you, brother. And I, I don't know that I had a, a moment necessarily like you've outlined in the book, but maybe a series of moments Oh, sure. that I was like, this isn't good. This isn't healthy. Um, and, um, I I like that you call it brain health and draw the parallel brain health, mental health. Uh, I forget what podcast or what book I was reading, but they basically said, why do we treat every other organ in the body as part of the body? But we call the brain mental health. It's like, it's an organ. Yeah. We don't understand it. You know? No, that's a great question. Have, cause you've obviously thought of this. Like what drives people to separate that? It's a, it's a, it's the only part of the healthcare industry that's riddled with stigma, even from the healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and I, I wonder a, if it, it, it feels like a, it's because a lack of understanding. It's the like only you can organ, test. Yeah. yeah. You can test the heart. Yep. Uh, Sanjay Gupta has a book about, about brain health or Sanjay Gupta. Yeah. He, he was the. Yeah. He was the CNN version of uh, of the COVID <laughs> <Yes>. updates, <laughs> but but he has a book about, and his is mostly based around like I think there's some therapy, but it's a lot around like your diet and things like that too. But he's like he says the same thing. I think that's where I heard it. He's like the brain, just because we can't run simulations and tests, and it's not as straightforward as the heart is like the organs obvious what it does pumps blood. Yep, the brain there's so much we don't know still, so we just say. Mental health, right? I, I completely up. agree with that. To a to, like, 
there is that this is you know you talk about and you we joke about elon and you know sending spaceships to mars and that being the final frontier really i'd argue that there's a there's another final frontier and that's our that's our brains we don't understand anything and it's the only organ that brain healthcare providers don't by and large scan and look at to treat it's talk therapy it's it's medication those types of modalities which by the way are very effective so i'm not downplaying them at all but we don't we don't scan the brain now, there there are machines that can do that and some doctors are doing that but it's not common practice the same way that somebody's going to scan your heart boom right away you're going to get an x-ray on a bone whatever it might be and because of the complexity of the brain it's we are really still at the at the beginning stages of understanding how everything works the communication between uh, neurons the formation of neural pathways how we how we feel right all of these different things how genetics work in terms of depression and anxiety and and the the passing down of these genes onto our offspring all of this is new it's at the forefront but it it is moving in the direction where in 20 years i don't think in 20 to 30 years if if things go the way that they're supposed to i don't have a job anymore because i don't have to advocate mm. man what a world <laughs> yeah I, like i'll believe it when i see it right yeah i hope so i really hope so it, it actually starts with integration of this type of information at the elementary. And that's a different conversation, mm -hmm. but get it in the schools so that it's just like any other conversation. We don't question gym class, but I guarantee you there'd be a bunch of pushback if you implemented 10 minutes of meditation at the start of a gym class. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for Nancy's, you know, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Dude, you know what my guy? So we had we had you know guidance counselors. I I don't know is a guidance counselor maybe they're intended to be somewhat of a therapist. I don't I don't know, but I had a really unfortunate position that my guidance counselor was like a seventy year old baseball coach, happening no. my baseball coach. And so you don't you know you don't go to that kind of person no. and say, man, I feel this, or hey, my home life is this. You mean coach walk it off? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> coach walk yeah. it off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's there's a couple of things and there's a couple of ways that that, that I, when I look at this, because, you know, like your book is definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's so foundational that it is absolutely accessible and perfect for like 18 year old me who right. felt like a weirdo. Yep. Because I, I, you know, and and, you know, not to compare battle scars. Um, sure. but you know, again, you know, my, my childhood was, was pretty solid, yeah. but there's definitely some childhood trauma stuff that, that really, that really showed itself. I mean, there was a reason I was the singer of an emo band, mm. right? There was a reason that I had to put on this facade of this rock star that I'm, I'm not right. I'm not this big rock star ego, but I had to put this facade on because it felt better. Mm. And when I had been drinking and when I was on the stage, I felt like other than, mm. right? Mm. And so I got into a habit of living in ways that were maybe in denial of my core self to appease other people. Because I was like, that's the ticket. That's the ticket. Um, 
but there's a couple of things that, that really, one is we're three dudes talking about our, our, you know, our brain health. Fifth, 10 years ago, that doesn't happen. Nope. Right. It doesn't happen. There's a stigma for, for, for men still. And I think it runs, I won't say I know because I haven't done the research, but I would, I would venture to guess it runs even deeper in communities of color and lower economic communities. They don't have the access to, and I think poverty is the fastest road to depression than almost anything. Mm. Uh, And so I think you're exactly right when you say this needs to be in the education system. And again, that's maybe an entire different conversation. I'm just thinking out loud, but how do we make it accessible to not just affluent people of means, but of people that have no means, you know, that have been taught Hey, you, you got to suck it up. Yep. And you know, there is a certain value of, of grit in our society and in society. Um, but there's also a value of being aware. <laughs> and when, when grit, when, when putting dirt on it is actually going to make it infected, you know what I mean? So mm. anyway, I, I just think about these things that you're saying and, and man, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, man. That was a great analogy. Tommy, I'm glad to hear you're passionate about it. I love it, man. You like that analogy? I literally just came up with that off the top of my head that as was, I was t- as I was talking. I literally might have to. I'll, I'll take I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll at you. I promise that. Um, yeah. So I will definitely call you out. But yeah, because that that awareness that you're talking about is what plagues so many people or the lack thereof. Yeah. Um, and it's Matt. What you're talking about, too, is a little bit of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So when you grow up in poverty, um, there's food scarcity, right? There's instability in the household. So food, clothes, water, the basic necessities, that's the basis of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid, right? And as you move up the period or the pyramid, oh, easy for me to say, (laughs) you get, you get, (laughs) what would they call that? They'd call that a Freudian slip, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. We won't analyze it too yeah, deeply. Let's not get let's not get into that one. Um at the top of it is basically this idea of finding your purpose. But if you're stuck at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs, you're never ever going to get past essentially thinking about the the basic survival mechanisms that you need. Yeah. That's why these conversations aren't taking place. People are surviving. When you're in poverty, you're surviving. Yeah. You know what I, one of the things I've learned recently, uh, and we, we talked about this last week, so I won't belabor it, but Cisco did a team's week where they brought in a lot of, uh, leaders in emotional education, you know, Mm. Brene Brown, the Nagoski sisters, Dr. Robert Keegan, uh, were some of my favorites. Mm. And one of the things that got talked about was burnout doesn't come from having too much to do. It doesn't come from being too busy or, or just swamped the way people might think burnout comes from when you don't feel any progress for the work that you put in. Mm. And I think what you just described there is people who are stuck on the bottom of the hierarchy of needs are people who go their entire life working and working and trying and not feeling progress. Mm. And I can't think of a faster way to feel like it's all hopeless and it's all pointless Mm. Uh, Mm. that sounds that sounds pretty devastating i i'll take a a small pivot here 
Yeah. Zach, because sure. I'm curious, uh, both your speaking and your work seem to be geared towards college-age students mm-hmm. and young professionals. Is there a reason you picked, you've targeted that demographic? Well, 75% of individuals that are going to experience the onset of a brain disorder like mine, um, and we can always get back to kind of the, the, the rest of the trajectory of that story whenever, um, for the listeners so they can know uh, a little, like the punchline of what I was diagnosed with, et cetera, so we can get to that later. Yeah, yeah I would say narrative structure is not our strong point on this podcast. No. We don't no. need that. I love the open dialogue. These are my favorite kinds. I told you this. I just love to like just talk. I'm in it. I'm so focused. Um, yeah. Or uh, the onset of anxiety or depression, right? So 75% are going to happen between 18 and 24%. So why, or, or in 24 years of, of age. So why not get in front of that age group to start and then if it if it balloons outside of that which it has you know i've, I've gotten into workshops um with parents now um and then ideally getting into uh the workforce and working with big corporations like cisco to create psychologically safe environments so i would be really interested in hearing the the workshop, the speech, whoever it was that talked about burnout and, and the workload not being a factor in burnout. I I really want to hear that because I don't want to project my opinion, but as somebody, Tommy, you mentioned this, you know, crying, having an emotional breakdown three to four times a year. I actually really relate to that. I got very, very sick and this gets to back to that awareness. I would get very, very sick the third month of every quarter and it took me two (laughs) years to realize wait a minute quarter end is making me sick yeah yeah it's literally making me sick i'm fatigued i'm exhausted and now i'm actually run down to the point where i need to like take a few days off to recover but that's not acceptable so i'm not going to do that i'm going to push through and then we still live in and in Look, Cisco is to me one of the be- best companies you can work for, but they're also my only sample size. I've never worked anywhere else. Um, I can say from experience with others that it's a very good place to work. For sure, <laughs> for sure. It doesn't. It's it's bad all over. Is okay. another way. Like yeah, America works you hard. Yeah, we do, and um, and then we meet it with that work hard, play hard mentality. So now it's I've exhausted my brain. I'm running on four to five hours of sleep a day. I'm not putting proper food in my body. And then now I'm going to go binge drink, which means I'm not going to fall into REM sleep. And uh, so I'm not going to get that deep quality sleep that our brains need. And I'm just going to put put my head in front of my feet and see how far I can stumble forward before I have that breakdown. And for somebody like me, my brain is so hypersensitive to various factors, substances I put in my body, the strain and workload that I put on myself, the way that I operate. Tommy talked about this in terms of an example being, if I stop working out today, my body is going to transform. If I decided to stop doing the various things that I do on a daily basis to take care of my brain, I could slip back that fog, fall back into that, that dark place very, very quickly. And there's a lot of unhealthy ideas, cultures that are pushed forward in any corporation that work hard, play hard mentality is honestly one of them. It's very dangerous, especially yeah, for people. I don't, d- yeah. 
Oh, I was just going to say, I don't disagree with you at all. And yeah. I want to add some clarity to what you called out on uh, the workload, because I do think I probably oversimplified that explanation. Yeah. When, when is saying without feeling rewards for your effort mm. and that like basically any, any workload is kind of acceptable. Well, if you take, if you take into account the fact that the brain is a multifaceted organism and how it can even experience the concept of reward, you can be crushing it at work, but if mm. you're exhausted, you're mm. not going to feel great about the work you've done. You can be really uh, invested in your children's life, but if you have ignored your work completely, you're going to feel like a failure in that sense, right? So I think that workload is kind of uh, inextricable from the idea of compromising your own reward system. Mm. So that when, when I simplify it to say like, well, you can't be overworked, it's like, Obviously, if you try to do everything, you will accomplish nothing. Right. And uh, I, I say obviously, but like how many of us have gotten pretty far down the road of life before? Like we've we've had our own anxiety or depression, you know, which I guess a good pivot here. How much anxiety, like when do you cross the line and saying like, this is depression versus like, I'm having a bad day. Is there a way to actually diagnose that? Or is that a unique to each person to kind of draw that line for themselves? And, and I'd add on Dusty, be, being someone who experiences both, are they separate? Mm. Can they be separate? Or are they, or is one like light blue and one is dark blue? That's probably is- a better place to start. Like, let's get the primer What's yeah. the difference between anxiety and depression, and when do you, when do you think it might be an issue? Absolutely. Well, so clinically, they'll they'll say that depression is sadness that lingers, intensifies, and persists over a two week time period or longer. And this mm-hmm. is where you kind of start to do some of the you know the things. You know, I, I go on a walk with my friend. I hit it. I hit an extra session in the gym. I watch a movie that's funny and is supposed to uplift me. I, I take a day off from work and I'm still feeling increasing levels of sadness. Okay. Could be a sign that you're feeling depressed. You need to go in and talk to uh, a psychologist, a counselor, a therapist, um, and they'll be the ones to diagnose that. But they categorize it, the, the, the kind of the big key factor that you want to look out for or symptom, I should say, is sadness that lingers, intensifies, and persists over a two-week time period or more. Here's the thing, though, and I actually think that this is what Tommy was talking about, the light blue versus the dark blue. You could have been depressed for a very long time, and so your baseline for what depression feels like is is different for you because you kind of experience, right? Your brain, neurologically, right, the way that it is set up, is you kind of always operate in a slight brain fog, a slight level of depression, and there are factors that can jump that thing up, right? To yeah. take it to a I, new level. That makes yeah. that makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, dude. You clarify it that way that like if you've been feeling this a long time, you don't even know what it is because my experience 
is I only understood what I used to feel once I had cleared the trajectory, mm. like years of work. And now like I think back about like what it felt like to be tired, what it felt like to have mm. certain experiences that didn't even register, like food that I enjoy now was just like whatever. Mm. Like right. the the whole palette of life was being given to me in muted colors. Mm. And yeah. it's it's kind of like that Pleasantville thing. Like once you get out of it and everything like goes bright, it's like, oh, this this isn't the same. Yeah, dude, I, I can I can absolutely relate. So like, so you know, from an from an anxiety standpoint, I, I would live for weeks at a time with almost this burning in my chest, feeling it almost feels like heartburn, yep. like like your sternum could just kind of rip apart at any moment. But it's so persistent that it just becomes the baseline. Mm. And at one point, my wife had, you know, that we, we had like an anxious moment. And she was like, I feel like I'm going to get sick. My chest hurts. Am I having a heart attack? And I, I was like, well, are you worried about the situation? She's like, yeah. I'm like, that's probably what this is. Mm. And I can tell you that just from experience that I live that, you know. And it, it wasn't really until therapy and reading on it and and watching videos on it and podcasts on it that you're like, you can begin to almost like, exhale right you know and so you and you know you mentioned the uh the amygdala like being like i'm the kind of person that when fight or flight when something spikes me yep it takes me a lot longer to come back down to zero than than average that's why i don't watch horror movies because if i watch a horror movie you know two hours later i take the dog outside it's not a rabbit in the woods. It's definitely someone that's going to kill me. And I can't, and I, and almost, I can't separate it. Yep. You know, what's funny about that? You say that with horror movies. I couldn't watch horror movies. Like back when I was back when I was suffering from some of the things we were talking about, like back when I was drinking a lot, back when I was underslept, like I would watch horror movies and it's like, I cannot stack this on top of it. Yeah. Now, I love a horror movie. It's like I can it's like I can process a little extra trauma in a way I couldn't before. You know, for me I know it's a trigger, so I just avoid it. You know, it's one of those yeah. things like, hey, you know, some people don't like Jim Carrey movies and they avoid those. So <laughs> Teach their own. Well, yeah. and I'll and I'll add to that too is and it's funny because I actually just watched my first horror movie that I've I Tommy, I was the same way. It, yeah. But here, but my justification was actually this: It's okay. You've got the amygdala. You've got this part of the brain that has evolved to help keep you alive. So, like you, you asked about um, Dustin. You asked about anxiety. So, how would I categorize anxiety? It's the fight, fight, or freeze system. The amygdala, that part of the brain that we all need. Otherwise, you wouldn't look both ways before you cross the street, right? Yeah. Turned up. People with anxiety, it's like the volume knob has just been turned up a little bit. And I always joke because I, I try to make light of, you know, living with anxiety and, and, and depression coming in and out of your life is that from an anxiety standpoint, I know that my amygdala is working very, very well. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it is performing at top levels because um, it's always active. And why do I want to watch something that's creating more anxiety when my nervous system is constantly being taxed, 
because when your fight or flight system is activated, right, the the sympathetic system actually, I was, I was going to say, because the parasympathetic system is what is what reduces the the stress hormone in the body, but the sympathetic system is what aids that process, right? Is kicked up because in my brain, my brain can't differentiate the fact that to Tommy's point that it's not a it's not a murder in the woods it's just a rabbit or it's just a leaf falling down from a tree but our brains people with anxiety our brains find worry and fear in all sorts of places and sometimes for seemingly no reason at all so for me it, it was more of an energy conservation thing like i just don't mm -hmm. want to do something that's going to elevate my heart rate past where it's already at mm -hmm. no that makes sense I uh, I don't know if this is going to be a bad question. I'm just going to go for it because go I wrote it. it down and I'm interested in it. Yeah. Um, I feel like for me personally, there is like I recognize anxiety in a gap between who I believe myself to be right now and the person I wish I were. Like there's this disparity there and like the more I recognize that, like to me that's that's kind of the birthplace of a lot of my anxiety. And I see a certain percentage of that as being beneficial, kind of to your point about, you know, the amygdala serves a purpose. I know we kind of just covered this with depression, but when do you start saying okay, this anxiety that was helping propel me forward is now a destructive force? Mm. Oh, it's a great question. Uh, and I talk about this with the students all the time. It's when it starts to interfere with all of the various factors in your life. And I, I talk about it. Ultimately, every human being wants to live a balanced life. Where we're, at con we're content and we're at peace with, the, with ourselves and the world that we're in, right? And I know that because when my peace of mind was taken away, all I wanted back was that peace of mind, a quiet brain, a calm, quiet mind. So how do you live a balanced life? Well, you maintain solid relationships. You maintain some level of, of success academically or in your career. You feel respected by your peers um, and the, the, the people in your community. You take care of yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually. Um, uh, you eat well, you get outside. These are all ways that people would say, right? And maybe you guys can add some that you would live a balanced life. So anxiety starts to become detrimental when that balanced life that I was just talking about starts to diminish. And, and I see this all the time um, with people that have my specific genre of brain disorder, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, where because our, our lives are always either expanding this is an expansion. We've never been on this podcast together. This is an expansion for me. You guys just gave me an opportunity. So first off, thank you. But you just gave me the platform, right? This is expanding. A lot of times when anxiety and fear, because anxiety is just fear turned up, right? Takes hold. Your world becomes smaller and smaller, right? You start declining opportunities to hang out with friends. You... Maybe you have to quit your job because you can't leave your house. I've seen this with people, right? Where anxiety, the fear of whatever that anxious thought is starts to control them. 
to the point where maybe now you become dependent on other people to to pay for your groceries, pay your bills, and your life becomes so small that there is nothing left. And that's on the extreme end. That's with individuals that go um, with severe anxiety untreated or severe depression untreated, the individuals that can't get out of bed, and that becomes their baseline. Um, but those are on the extreme ends. I mean, obviously, the middle ground is when you start to notice some of the, and Tommy talked about this, notice that some of your relationships are being impacted. Why did I just say that? Why do I feel mm-hmm. like I've got so much irritability in my body? Why, why do I struggle to relax? Why is it that I could pop off on my significant other at any moment? Um, why is it that my sleep is so disrupted? Why, why can't I fall asleep peacefully at night? Um, why is it that I haven't had motivation to go to the gym and three months have passed? That's the middle ground. And they call that languishing. And we don't talk about that enough in America. Languishing is the precursor to anxiety and depression. And they estimate that roughly about 50% of Americans are languishing right now. Tommy and I just were exchanging Adam Grant posts about languishing. Yep. Tell me, tell me ago. more. Tell me more. What what were they about? Oh, Tommy, do you have it uh, top of mind? I'll pull it up real quick because we just sent um, those back. Gosh, I, I have to think back because this was it was from a um, an article he wrote for New York Times, I think. That was the article. Um, that was read the same article. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, and I think it's because it's one of these things. I mean, I. Maybe it's a real thing or maybe it's a soft entry for some people. Yep. And what I mean by that is a, a lot of people are are afraid or ashamed or they've been taught again that depression is a bad thing. Mm. You don't you don't want that depression. You don't want to get that, right? The depression. <laughs> the depression. Gary Goleman, man, if you haven't That's listened right. to his Oh, yeah, I have, yeah. of course. It was yeah. hilarious. Fantastic. He's my favorite comedian. But, you know, it, and I say this from from a male perspective, but like it's always been taught, you suck it up, yep. you rub dirt on it. Uh, to admit to full on, I'm I have I struggle with depression, is to lose a part of oneself or potentially, and so people would rather suck it up. Mm. It gets worse, but if they can say, well, there's this middle ground, you don't have to be incapacitated. And you don't have to be living a completely fulfilled life. There's somewhere in between that is a cousin of both. Would you be, it's like we're in sales. Would you be willing to admit that? (laughs) Right. And it's like, well, yeah, actually I do feel that. And it's complete. And, and what's, what is great about it is it's, there's no stigma around the word languishing. Right. And it's like, well, that's a normal human emotion. I'm allowed to feel that. What do I do about it? Oh, here's what you do. If you don't do that, it could then spiral into this. And if you're already there, maybe you're a little past languish. Are you willing to admit that? And so I think it's an excellent term. I think it's an excellent state, I don't know, to, to, to say that where a lot of us are in that. And I think people are more willing to say, yeah, I do feel that. Mm. Those are emotions that I feel. So I don't know. I like it. I did find it. And Tommy, you actually encapsulated it pretty perfectly. Thank you. So I'm not going (laughs) to 
<laughs> I agree. I'm not going to belabor it by like reading what he said because you kind of nailed all the points. So way to absorb the knowledge. Ah, oh, man, I must have been in a flow state that day. <laughs> I totally agree, though. That was a perfect way of encapsulating it. And my thing is, if it works, let's keep rolling with it. If it makes totally. more men and more women and more people aware and, and comfortable saying, oh, yeah, I do kind of feel blah i think that they said that in the article yeah blah, blah. yeah yeah blah. exactly like i do kind of feel that or yeah i do like nothing's wrong but i don't feel motivated it's like okay well that's something that we should look into let's talk about that like the, the kitchen doesn't need to be on fire to, to, to rewire the appliances like let's right. get in and and start talking about why do you feel lack of motivation yeah well, I do think that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tommy. Well, no, I was going to say, I, and, and, you know, I, mine's a sidebar, so go ahead, man. I, I had a well, thought of something from a bit ago. Well, I was going to say, and we'll, we'll bring it back around, uh, but I do think that so much of our conversation around mental health is based upon outputs. And, like, we're, we're a performance-driven society, so I think that a lot of what we look at with somebody is, are their outputs good? Mm. Well, then they must be good. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so let me see the way, because I, I wrote a note on this when I was reading your book. I love that. What is you that said, by the way. So love much that. of our, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it came from you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So much of our brain health is related to behavior, the way we understand it. Like yeah. we look at behavior and we say, oh, if your behavior is this, you might be experiencing this. Right. So how much of getting someone back on track is, hey, if we fix your outputs, then your brain health will follow? Mm. Or is it the other way around where, hey, we need to tend to your feelings and your thoughts and then we can start steering your behavior. Like, what's mm. the interplay between those two things? Does that make sense? It makes complete and total sense. So the, the cognitive behavioral therapist will say, if we address your belief systems, your ideas, we can then impact your thoughts and behaviors. So the way that cognitive behavioral therapy works, and, and by the way, um, this is something that I've been through and I think everybody like this should literally be taught starting in elementary school and beyond because it's, mm. it's self-regulation, it's self-validation. It's the a foundational building block to self-esteem. It, it's like, have either one of you ever got a compliment before? Once. Once. <laughs> out of seven. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and how long did that compliment last? How long did you feel good about yourself after you got that compliment? If you're anything like me, it lasted a second. I don't receive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to. There's something I was thinking about earlier that Dusty said, like, I don't receive praise well. So even when things are going well, like at work, some great job. Yeah, but I got lucky. I was in the right territory and, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like getting. I can't wait to tell people to, like, stuff their compliment. Oh, Dusty, you're so good at this. Ah, Well, you know, nah, just like take that somewhere else. Yeah. Instead of just saying thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is, by the way, a side thing that I've really worked on. And that's conditioning, right? There were things that happened to us earlier on in life that taught us to, hey, when when you receive that compliment, 
you know, downplay it. Don't, don't accept that. Right. Don't, don't, I guess in a sense, it's almost like dull your light a little bit. And I can actually, I don't know if we want to go down that path, but I've got a story specifically for mine. I remember the exact moment that I realized that you want to kind of downplay your success because others might the story. I want to hear it. Yeah, man. If you're comfortable sharing it, share away, man. Oh, sure. First grade. Uh, it's underhand softball pitch from the coaches. I step up to the plate, boom, smack one to the smack one to the, uh, to the fence. I round all the bases in the park home run. Of course, this is what seven-year-olds do because the kid that went and got the ball threw it like even further in the wrong direction. You <laughs> yeah. know, like we're seven years old. Yeah. I, 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 I hit an in the park home run. I come running back to the dugout and I go straight up to my best friend and he's sitting there and he's not like happy. And I'm like, hey, so-and-so, I'm not going to say his name. Are you happy for me? And he looked at me and he said, no, I'm not. And that moment has stuck it like it because I remembered as a kid feeling like the best way I could describe it was I felt rejected, but I didn't have a word for what like feeling rejected feels like. And from that moment forward, it was me kind of spending the rest of my life wanting to be accepted, wanting to have success, but not wanting to kind of outshine the people around me because I was so fearful of losing them as a friend if I did something that made them feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny that I could track it back to that because it happened again in third grade. And then I had a a real, I had a really uh, painful breakup that happened when I was a freshman in college. And I remembered that rejection feeling coming back even stronger. Um, And it's almost like my brain, like I had to reach, and this is why I work with people one-on-one to self-regulate, self-validate and build my own self-esteem because somebody can give you a compliment and it'll last a second, a minute, Mm -hmm. an hour, a day, but eventually it's going to fade. And what's going to be left in replacement of that compliment is how you feel about yourself. Um, and for me getting diagnosed with OCD was one of the best things that could have ever happened because Dustin, you talked about this, you get rid of the weed, get rid of the alcohol. Now I'm sitting with a lot of emotions and thoughts and different things that I've felt over the years that I've never sat with and unpacked. Why do I act macho all the time? Why do I try to act tough? I'm not a tough guy. I don't like violence. Why do I pretend like I would show belly up to somebody and swing. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. But why did I think that at some point I needed to do that? What, uh, and maybe this is a good point to bring it back around to the beginning of where this turned for you. What did you start to do that helped you recognize your own mental health issues? And like, when did you feel when did you feel things start to turn? Like, okay, I, I'm getting a handle on it. Okay, that's a great question. And I and I do actually, I'm glad you asked that because I do want to circle back to the CBT because I think that that's really important um, to the question that you asked before. But um, like January happens and it's there's no denying at this point what's going on. I mean, I'm dealing with intrusive thoughts. 
I've got anxiety like I've never felt before. I mean, I'm waking up exhausted. And I remember walking into a, a Toastmasters. I don't know if you all have heard of Toastmasters before. Yeah. The little speaking, oh, yeah. yeah, little speaking club. And I was, I had been a regular there since I'd moved down to Raleigh. And I remember Alan was his name. And I remember him looking at me and he kind of looked me up and down and he goes, Zach, you look exhausted. And I was, I was in the thick of it. Right. And I, I, I didn't know what to say to him. I said, I'm just tired. You know, I'm just tired. But I'm severely anxious, deeply depressed, and I'm in full-blown panic mode because my plan didn't work. And I've pulled back the curtain on a brain that I didn't know I had. And so the next couple of months were spent in exploration mode, but it was it was to, to no avail. Nothing was working. It was just continuing to get worse. And at the peak of my dark period, I was having thoughts of suicide from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed. So this was literally sitting in RTP and is it building eight? I think is the sales building mm, seven, seven building, seven building, seven sitting in meetings, trying to pay attention, sitting in the cafeteria on the ground floor with zero appetite, but being with colleagues and being like, if I sit here and don't pick at this food right now and just force something down, people are going to notice that I'm not eating. Hmm. But meanwhile, y'all are talking about, and this is just like a arbitrary y'all. General not, y'all. The, general the royal, y'all. The royal y'all. The royal y'all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are talking about like what's going on with Cisco's stock price and the, the technology we just learned about and this, that, and the other. And I could care less because the only voice that I can hear right now is the one that's telling me, go kill yourself or Take this bite of food before somebody thinks you're uh, like acting funny. Don't draw attention to yourself. Wow, I feel so anxious. How do I stop this? Oh my God, I feel like I'm going to faint. Act normal. I'm just giving you, and this is like yeah. second by second by second. And it compounds, doesn't it? Oh, it just snowballs because you feel like you're losing control. Yeah. I'm like, I'm starting to like, I'm coming home. Um, Tommy, to, to your point on the on the quarterly breakdown, I'm coming home now and breaking down every single day because I'm petrified. Yeah. Because now I think that I've lost complete and total control of my brain and that this is now going to be my new baseline. And this is not a fun place to be. When you are bombarded with intrusive thoughts about going, your own brain telling you to go kill yourself, things get real scary real quickly. Um, but the turning point, Dustin, was hitting my rock bottom moment, which I talk about in the book, uh, where I seriously considered suicide as the only viable option and thought to myself, you know what, let me call my parents. Let me call my parents. Let me at least let them know what's going on. I was in shock. This is a form of trauma, by the way. So the onset of it for any illness, you yourself, Dustin, you have experienced a traumatic event in life. And it's also so beautiful to see where you've taken it, by the way. And I'll pause because I know I just brought that up. So I don't know if there's anything you no. want to say. I'll, I'll just, well, I'll say thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate you recognizing more than anything. I appreciate you recognizing the spectrum of trauma. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that. That was probably something I took away from having leukemia and not understanding how to cope with my own experience. 
yep. and not having the, the skill set to process it. It's made me empathize with people who go through anything that is extremely difficult to contextualize in your own past experience and extremely difficult to look at people on your left or right and say, how am I doing compared to them? because their life no longer makes any sense compared to what you're feeling internally and the mm. way you see your own. So, yeah, I, I've i used this term on this podcast saying that, like, I think I came out of leukemia with, like, a mild... My, I don't, I, see, I don't even know why I do that. Why do I have to say it's mild? I had some kind of PTSD. Oh, sure. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like, the medical classification of that, but I know that, like, just those words I've, I really relate to. Post-traumatic stress was leaving my life in disorder. Mm. Yeah, dude. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for mentioning it, because a lot of the, the work I've done around my own personal brain health started with that experience. Like it all, it all came from trying to make sense of that trauma. So I think that's a great way to apply it to if you're somebody out there going through something that you're having trouble making sense of, that word is a broad umbrella for you to begin justifying however you need to in your own mind, reaching out to somebody for help. Mm. Mm. Not unlike you did with your parents. Absolutely, and I, and I that's one of my biggest messages is that uh, asking for help is a is a sign of strength, not a not a weakness. Um, so I completely agree with that. A couple of little sidebars: that comparison you talked about, looking to the left and the right. I had the worst brain envy at the peak of my symptoms. I would look around a room and I would say, "I wish I had that person's brain." I would do anything for that person's brain. I don't even know what's going on inside their head, but I will swap right now. I think it's tough, especially when you're, you take a a company like Cisco and I'm sure there's a lot of organizations like this out there. Like a lot of the people we work with on a daily basis are impressive people. Yeah, they are. Right? Like you hear them talk, they're eloquent. You see them in the gym, they're in great shape. You look at their houses and they're gigantic. Yep. It's like, these people got it going on. I mean, 100%. And so you're, it's, and it ties right back into my point because I'm looking around the room and I'm saying, what is wrong with me? Like, where did things go wrong here? Because this was not on the roadmap. You know, when I came down here to be a part of a, a, a technology company and, and spend the next 30 years trying to be a part of innovation in this space, this was not the plan. So that's when I called my parents um, and, and told them what was going on really in, in just complete desperation. And so that's what I really push people to do because my phone call with them went like this, Zach, we don't know what's going on with you, but we want you we know that this is outside of our scope. Like I distinctly remember that sentence. We want you to get well. We don't know what that is going to entail, but we want you to get on the right track. And that phone call was the catalyst to me eventually accepting the fact that I needed to start looking up psychologists in the RTP area, 
that then led to me finding Dr. Arreen, who was the psychologist that diagnosed me with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, where the core symptoms are severe anxiety, deep depression, and thoughts of suicide. And that was the start of the work because exposure and response prevention is the core one and only proven talk therapy for OCD. But cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is a therapy that's applicable for anybody. I actually look at it as the core foundation to anybody's personal development. And that is really where once I got past that first level of trauma, that PTSD, that shock of like, whoa, I'm living with a brain disorder that impacts 1% of the world's population is chronic. There's no pill. There's no surgery. There's nothing that I can get rid of. There's this talk therapy that if I execute on this, I can obtain some normalcy in my life. Once I got past that, I invested the time in, in this very challenging talk therapy and got out to the other side. It was like, well, now that I've knocked that down, I'm going to knock down everything else from the, the small baseball incident to the breakup to why I behave the way that I do to the why do I have these certain character traits. So I wanted to I wanted to explore it all. And that's really where um, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, these types of, of tools came into play. And that was that's the big awesome. that was the big turning point. No, you know, that's good. I, I so I <laughs> I knew that I needed to go to therapy. Just just like you said, like I was I had reached the point where I was like, I'm not doing this on my own, but I almost needed the invitation mm. to be like, it's OK to go. Yep. And I'm Dusty. I've told you this before. <laughs> I asked Dusty who his therapist was, who his psychologist was. Cause I didn't know, like, I didn't know how else, like I'm such like a, the cost of action is high. Right. Dusty. Like I, I'm not going to just go to anybody right. and I'm like, chief part of your personality pie. It is man. And, I, and I'm, I'm like asking him like, is she cool? Like, is, does she get it? And, uh, I'm thankful that you, you're not someone who was like, well, I, that's my, you know, that's my therapist, you know? And he just, so for a while we were seeing the same person. Um, that's awesome. Which, yeah, but, but I needed that, like dude, it's cool. Like yeah. I'm doing it and yep. it's helping me. Yep. Um, so I, so I do want to pause and say like, for anybody's listening, like here's three guys, right. That are just saying, Hey, we do it <laughs> and yeah. for guys or, or for, or for, you know, any, any women that listen to this, like it, you, you don't have to be, you know, at, at the end of your rope to do it. Yep. But it can also like clear the dust a little bit. I'll give you, I'll give you guys this example because I think as I, so I've actually kind of dabbled a little bit with, um, EMDR as far as like yep. a therapy to sort of really dig back into like a catalyst event yep. that I never what processed. What does that stand for? Tommy? I'd have Do to look know? up the, I'd have to look up the exact, uh, what, what the acronym means. The, 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 essentially what it is, is you, you pick the earliest event that you can think that a behavior may have begun that, that behavior that has subsisted throughout your life and is maybe, and you, you use bilateral stimulation. So either the, the therapist sort of moves their finger or you kind of tap your, tap your waist. And essentially you, as you're talking through this event, Mm. it's almost like your brain is in REM. Like you're tricking your brain to be in a state where it can process this information 
And it was really wild to do it because I'd start talking about X situation and I'd end up talking about something completely different that I didn't realize was absolutely related. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so the m- most recently, so, you know, we're going on vacation, um, tomorrow, two young kids and we're sitting there and she's like, this is a good point. Cause we've unpacked enough what we needed to do. And, and we've, we've kind of put that old memory, that memory has been cleared as, as it says, she's like, well, let's put this to, let's, let's kind of put it in action and let's do some preparation. And here I am in therapy preparing myself for a tropical vacation. And as I'm going through it, I'm like, I even, I I told my therapist, I'm like, anybody that doesn't understand therapy would think this is the most ridiculous thing in the world that I'm mentally preparing myself for a, basically a free tropical vacation. But also, you know, it's like, but that, but that works for me and it helps me. Um, and, and maybe the biggest realization that I came to, because I think, you know, some people, whether, whether they listen to this podcast and they've been to therapy before, or maybe they think there's a stigma around it or whatever. Only recently did I realize that the purpose of therapy isn't to absolve yourself of feeling like you're not going there to say, well, I'm not, I don't want to feel sad anymore. I don't want to feel angry anymore. I don't want that. That would be non-human, but but the purpose of of therapy is to say, I do have these feelings and it's completely human to have these feelings and how do I process them and not judge myself for having them. And I don't know why it took me almost three years to come to that resolution. Um, but it really was like, it's getting to that point where, Oh yeah. Yeah. Now I can, now I can almost function like, and you guys probably had this experience, especially early on in therapy you have a great session, right? Two weeks later, you have another session, but inevitably two days after your great session, something triggers you and you don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. So you're like, I can't wait to get back to my next session and deal with this thing. Mm -hmm. I need to like the beginning. It's almost like I want to give this to this person and let them help me figure it out. And after time, just like repetitions in the gym, just like repetitions, writing, singing, you begin to realize that that person was just giving it back to you to work on it. Mm. And so in those moments, those triggers aren't as I got to get back. It's more like I'm doing it in the moment. So anyway, um, I wanted to share it with you guys because I thought you guys would at least appreciate the fact that here I am psyching myself up for a vacation. That's, you know, because, you know, uh, you said it, Zach, you said you looked around the room and you're like, I want that person's brain. Mm. Well, hey, I see these things and I'm like, I want to be carefree going on vacation like I see some of my friends do. I want to be chilled to the max. I don't want to have any worry in my mind. And that's what I want. And I tried to fake it before and it just doesn't. The anxiety is more. Mm. It's like, this, am I acting too cool? Like, is this, is, oh, yeah. is, this how it, is this how I do this? And so, I don't know. It was, it was both useful, a little weird uh, to do it, but also like... I don't know. It was, it was kind of a different approach and, and I'm excited. Now I'm like excited about the opportunity to, uh, to, to see my, uh, see my work in action. I don't know. It's a personal story from my standpoint, but thought you guys would appreciate that. I really appreciate it. And what you're talking about too, um, around, uh, because there's the feeling themselves and then there's the feeling that we have about having the feeling and what you're, (laughs) 
right? Feeling anxious about being anxious, feeling sad about feeling sad, feeling angry about being angry. Yeah. Um, you're talking about acceptance. Gosh, people are so weird. We are just so weird. You think a dog is sitting there like, ah, damn it, this squirrel just keeps getting away from me. I'm so angry at myself for being angry about that squirrel. <laughs> so life is always trying to achieve homeostasis or balance, right? So we're the only organism on the face of the planet that can experience life as richly as we can, which mm-hmm. means that for every positive, that delicious bite of food, that beautiful movie scene, that song that we love, that when it turns on, it makes us feel a certain way. For all those positive feelings, there's also, and you talked about this, Tommy, that human aspect that, well, then we can feel depression. We can feel frustration. We can ruminate over feeling these emotions. So we're the only organism that has the capacity to experience life as richly as possible. But because of that, we sign up for both both sides of that coin. And acceptance is one of the biggest things that I've cultivated over the last six years since the onset of the brain disorder. Acceptance around feeling the emotions, acceptance that I can't change my situation, that I can only respond to it through a value-based lifestyle. Um, Accept the specific thoughts that cause me trouble. And what I've found is it kind of lightens the load. the more and more that you build that muscle of acceptance. It's been a huge tool for me. So it's funny when you talk about uh, wanting to be that relaxed person on vacation, I felt that way too for so long. I was like, I just want to be the relaxed person on vacation. And this is a mind, like talking about acceptance is a mindfulness tool. Um, So it it, it really is um, derived from mindfulness and then actually through meditation, cultivating acceptance. But what I started doing when I would go on vacation or just now in my daily life is, and it can be very difficult because we all want to feel good. Nobody wants to sit in stress, overwhelm, anxiety, depression, but almost cultivating this mentality of zero expectation for the experience and acceptance in whatever comes. And what I've found is you kind of joked about getting in that flow state. If you can genuinely get to that place, oftentimes that calm and peace and carefree living that we all crave kind of bubbles up to the surface without us consciously trying to force it into existence. So that's just a little side note on that, that I've, yeah, that I've found to be beneficial. So I want to hit one more thing before we kind of get into our weekly segments to, to wrap this up. Uh, and it has to do with acceptance because mm. a big part of this podcast for Tommy and I that took us a while to get over, and we're not 100% there, mm. is you share a lot of yourself when you decide to speak in public about things that are going on with yourself, mm. you know? Mm. And one of the things that struck me when I reached out to you about doing this podcast is even today I was like, hey man, I'm trying to get these questions out to you so you kind of have an idea about what we're going to talk about ahead of time. You can be prepared. Like I'm starting to build some stress around this and you're just like, hey man, whatever you guys want to talk about, I am an open book. Yeah. And pretty early on in You're Not Alone, you talk about this private life you 
Mm. And then like putting the face on to be like this outwardly facing Zach. Mm. And my wife and I, when we first met you, like one of my first memories of meeting you was on Bill Ronaldo's boat and you were, it might, like you were engaging and you were great at asking questions and you struck us as like incredibly put together. And then later, you know, when you, when you come out with these stories of what you were going through, I was like, oh man, like worlds apart. Yeah. How, how much of this practice of acceptance do you feel like is related to making your private you the exact same as the public you? And mm. has that, has that delineation become less? Like, are you more and more consistently the same person or is there still an element of, well, there's, there's things that are just for me and there's things I share with the world. Mm. That's a great question. I love that. Um, I am becoming more and more the exact person that you see on this podcast, on Instagram, walking down the street as I am in my public life. And again, I'm always a full, you know, fully transparent. I think the biggest hurdle that my fiance and I are trying to really get to a, 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 a really good balance on is, and for me in particular, I'm starting to get to the point where I'm wondering if I ever want to drink again. And mm. I don't have a drinking problem. I can have a glass of wine and be done. I just don't like how it makes me feel. I don't like how it makes my brain feel. And so that is probably one of the, the hurdles that I'm I, – I, it's hard to imagine just letting go of that, you know, like having that beer with the boys, having a glass of wine with your fiancé at dinner. Um every now and again celebrating, popping a bottle of champagne on vacation or whatever it might be. Um, that is my biggest, that is kind of the last thing that I'm trying to figure out what place does alcohol have in my life? Because every other area right now, right, and we're always evolving and changing, is in alignment. Who I am, what I speak about, what I spend my time doing in my private life is what I talk about and do in public. No, that's awesome to hear. I think that's got to be one of the freeing things. And part of the reason I like having this podcast is when Tommy and I get into certain topics and knowing that you have people out there that are listening to what you're saying and you can feel yourself like, oh, we're about to talk about this thing and I'm I'm starting to like mute my opinion a little bit. It's like, there's there's another uh, quote from uh, is Adam Grant's most recent book, Think Again. Mm. A former recommendation from myself on this very podcast. <laughs> it was a former <laughs> recommendation. And the the quote was, "If uh, man, I'm I'm probably going to butcher this. If it has something to do with knowledge on the front end, but basically then." knowing what we don't know is wisdom. Mm. And I think when knowing, trying to know what I don't know, like that's an emotional experience. Mm. It's like I'm, I'm pushing into the boundaries of my comfort level. 
And so when I know that there's an audience out there or I, like I used to feel this when I would lie to my therapist, like I could feel myself like curving the narrative, right? Oh yeah. And I think that that delineation between who I am privately and who I'm willing to let people see publicly Mm. is like great at highlighting, here's what I need to work on. Mm. So I also, I think Mm. it's interesting you bring up like that alcohol is kind of that thing that you're, you're grappling with right now because I've, I've got a few things myself that it's like, I know I can't talk about these things. And so they're not, they're not working yet. That is a great way to frame that up too, in terms of shining a light on an area that you feel that you need to work on, because I completely agree with that. For me, it's, it is literally just this feeling of, I can drink one glass of wine and I just, it's like, I feel it. Like I feel terrible the next day. Um, or like, I'll feel bad like an hour later, like I'll have a headache and I'm like, this wasn't worth it. Like I just could have skipped Mm -hmm. that and had the meal and a great conversation and things would have been great. You know what I mean? So it's funny that you bring that up because it's, it's, I wouldn't call it like, you know, my rock bottom, like in my book, but it is something that when you ask that question, it does kind of shine a light on, on that aspect. And it, it is something that I do think about, um, at least on a weekly basis in terms of finding that balance. So it's, I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Dusty it's, and, and Zach is something that, uh, so I'm I'm fresh off of Brene Brown daring greatly. So you know you guys you guys are I mean and it's going to be another listen for sure. Maybe I listened to this one at 1.25. I probably need to go at one x speed. It's just a little bit longer of a haul. <laughs> but you know she even she said she's like there are there are things that I put in the public spotlight because I've processed them mm. and I'm comfortable in them. Yep. And she's like the things that I'm still working on. That's for just the small circle that I trust with that information to see. Yep. And so, yeah, you're right, Dusty. And and that's, that. it's definitely for me, it's a bit of a, um, a litmus test as, as to how I feel before we discuss about it on a podcast for however many people are going to listen, but it's in the public ether. And if I haven't fully dealt with it personally, where I feel bulletproof in that, I can't put it out there because then, it it, exp- it would expose me to something that I'm not ready to deal with any type of backlash mm. or, or any type of like celebration. Like, Hey, great job. That's awesome. If I hadn't fully processed it or dealt with it, then I would meet that still with like, Oh, are they saying that because they really mean it? Are they judging me? Are they this and that? So I think it's, I mean that you're right. This podcast does give us a bit of a, a barometer of like, have I worked through this or am I still working on this? <laughs> Yeah, there's something in in your execution steps. You know, like I think it's so easy to justify ourselves when it's just happening inside our own brain. Like you're mm. we're tricky and we're cunning with our self-identity yeah. to ourselves. Like yeah. we flex it to make ourselves feel good. And when you have to put it out into the world, I like the term bulletproof. Like if if it has vulnerabilities that you're not ready to accept, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Mm. It's uh, great to be vulnerable, but you know, you don't have to be that to everybody, right? No. <laughs> um, so you, you got to walk a line. Yeah. So, uh, 
I'm going to pivot to our weekly segments. And I was going to say, Dusty. Do you have any parting statements? I, well, I was going to say, we should uh, maybe, maybe we can give Zach the floor real quick of how people can find him, get a hold of him, uh, his book, Instagram, all these different things before we get into that. Be, maybe give you the floor for a little bit. Unless, Dusty, you want to do that on the some, some sort of upfront end. Heck, we can do it twice for all I care. I just want to make sure, uh, Zach, are you down to answer our self-discovery question of the week? I saw it, and yes, I'm down. I was like, ooh, I like this. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm all about yeah, it. Yeah, man. Then, uh, then where can people find you? Where can they get the book? We'll also link to all this stuff in the show notes for you listening. Perfect. Yeah. So they can find me at uh, ZachWesterbeck.com. So Zach is Z-A-C-H. Westerbeck can be difficult. They People tend to think that there's an A somewhere in there, but it's all E's. So W-E-S-T-E-R-B-E-C-K.com. You can find my book on Amazon. It, you can type in You're Not Alone and Zach, and it should pop right up. Um, Instagram is at Zach underscore Westerbeck. You can search me on LinkedIn at Zach Westerbeck. Um, and yeah, cause you can contact me through the website. I was going to give my email, but there's a contact button. Please hit me up. I'm, I'm always down for a conversation. Uh, if you're struggling, if you're on your journey, uh, people reach out to me all the time about OCD, like symptoms, depression, anxiety, bipolar, asking questions. And I'm, I'm happy to, uh, take the time to respond. So that's where you can and find me. I'll, I appreciate that. And I'll add to that, that. I I am enthused when you are able to share stories on your Instagram story, like after you've given a talk or something, and seeing these college students, uh, I, I'm assuming college students, but the, the DMs and the messages that mm. they send to you about the impact it's had is awesome. So I know that it is your profession and your career, but also it's just it's just good charitable work like in independent of the fact that you make money it's like it is a to me it is an inspirational way to spend your time it's very giving so i appreciate you opening that up for anybody listening thank you and you'll have a fresh follow request or follow i did it while you were doing that oh love <laughs> that love it i follow back so let's do it <laughs> All right, guys, this is, uh, so we do, Tommy and I have been working our way through the We're Not Really Strangers self-reflection mm. card pack. Mm. Um, we've, we've had a few of these where we'll have a, we'll give an answer on here. It's like, ah, I need yeah. to edit that out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Usually me. I'm like, hey, Dusty, can you take out that two minutes of, uh, of my, my ramble? Yeah. I'm not sure yeah, I'm ready to have that one two. out there yet. Yeah, to hey, our conversation to earlier. So. Man. It's all about the it. processing. I love it. All right. So this week's question is, what's my most toxic trait I can admit to? Mm. Where do I think it stems from? Uh, and we will go to Tommy and then to Zach. I'll read it again. What's my most toxic trait I can admit to? Where do I think it stems from? So I, I think I'm I'm glad we're doing this a little bit beforehand where we get it at least a few, you know, an hour or two before, because it gives me some time to process that. Well, we've, we've learned our lesson. We've, we've evolved about... a little bit. 
shooting from the hip is not great with a uh, self-reflection question. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, when our brains are healthier, we can process the information yeah, just, faster. There we go. You know, it's something that I, I think I told you. This is going to be contradictory if someone's keeping notes uh, on our podcast. And if you are, thank you. <laughs> you want an internship? Um, <laughs> but but it's it's something that, that had become such a big part of me that I almost wore it as a badge of honor. Mm. And it is like cynicism or being cynical. Mm. Um, it was a way for me... Where, where did it stem from? It was a survival tactic for me. It was, a, it was it was a it was a method by which I could invite people in with humor, but keep people out by not getting too close. Um, why I did that, I could be it could be any number of reasons, from you know breakups to friendships to family stuff. Um, but when when uh sarc- when 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 sarcasm is funny and sarcasm and cynicism seem to be somewhat related i would just chalk it up as i'm just being sarcastic and i think one of the things that that it does and and, and prevents for me is one being vulnerable and it also prevents me from taking uh maybe taking risks or hearing other opinions I think mine's the best. And so, you know, one of these questions a few episodes ago, I, I said, I think I've conquered my cynicism. Um, and then, you know, it just rears its ugly head. So for me, that that's one that, that I'm working through. Um, but it's absolutely, at least from, from, from this, you know, the couple hours that I've spent thinking about this one, that that's, that's probably number one for me. We'll check in in about five episodes to see how you're doing. It'll be gone again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing, Tommy. Yeah, man. Zach. It's a great question. I I think that, you know, it's interesting as an advocate, but I think it, one of my, it's one of your traits, right? One of your traits. That's a little toxic. I think that one of, we talked a little bit, a little bit about self-esteem and I think I'm, I'm in terms of being grounded in, in who I am, I feel like I'm as far along in that journey to date. It's almost like that you don't know what you don't know what you were saying. I think I'm as far along in that journey in terms of being comfortable with myself. But one thing that I, I notice is that there is this part of me that wants to be wanted. There's this trait of me that wants to be wanted. And I think it's human in nature, but how do you delineate between being an advocate and wanting to help people genuinely and and also because sure it makes you feel good and wanting to to help to fulfill a, a need that you have to feel desired and it gets back to that rejection thing that we talked about and i think for me that next layer of confidence is going to come when i can honestly look in the mirror and say that I can take or leave your approval of me. And I don't think I'm there yet. So I think one of the traits that I'm really working on is being completely grounded, wanting to help people, um, but making sure that every single time I'm going to help somebody, I'm helping them for the right reasons. 
Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm not a stickler on the card, but I what you're what you're talking about rings. I'm sure rings true with a ton of people. It's like, why do I do what I do? Yeah. Do you have any idea where that like started to surface for you? Has this been like a lifelong? My mom feeling. I've always my mom's because you know we had lots of conversations, especially early on. Is I'm, I'm like, what is going on with my brain? So we're talking about all sorts of things, and those conversations. It's been really fun actually because we've you know even now my dad talks about brain health and it's it's awesome, but. I have always been a sensitive kid. And for the longest time, I thought sensitivity made me very weak. It made me less of a man. Um, And I always admired guys that didn't feel, or at least projected this, like this, this, you know, bravado, this, I don't feel anything, nothing bothers me. I care about everything very deeply. And I'm also very sensitive, so I can get offended easily or I can get hurt easily. Um, now, through awareness, I've learned like, okay, this isn't something that brain, I understand that you're getting sensitive about this. This isn't something that you need to worry about, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it. I'm a deeply sensitive person. And I think that um, that definitely contributes to it, without a doubt. This is, uh, so this is funny. Last week... Let me see if I can. Last week, our question from the We're Not Really Strangers pack was, what have I been sensitive to lately? Mm. And Tommy and I both just like, we probably did like 30 minutes on having to rediscover our relationship to our own sensitivity. Mm. Yeah. So everything you're saying just resonates. Yeah. Well, thanks. That makes me feel better, guys. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. I appreciate oh, that. Man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. It. Uh, so I'll, I'll go. Uh, my most toxic trait that I can admit to, I, you know, most, I don't know, but it's definitely a bad one. Uh, Tommy, this takes me back to the Freakonomics podcast you recommended to me maybe four years ago. Okay. Moral licensing. Jeez, oh, that's a deep you cut. Remember I, that? I, I I mean I remember it, but I barely remember it. So, uh moral licensing um essentially is when something happens to you and it can be bad or you feel slighted. Like say say Tommy and I are splitting a pizza and there's eight slices and Tommy eats the fifth slice, limiting me to 3. And now we are left unbalanced, and I, in my own mind, take on extra justification for any action I want to take against Tommy because mm-hmm. he owes me. I remember that episode. I thought that that sounded familiar. I remember that episode, and I yep. remember that ex- that that example came from that episode, right? Did he I talk think about? So. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, it it stuck with me because like once you're aware of this event that happens in a myriad of ways, right? They talk about a cash register or a, a cashier who, if the person is rude to them, like they would slide a dollar, like um, my crappy job forces me to endure individuals like this, and they would like change the tabulation and slide like a dollar or two 
that they could then take home extra money because they deserved it for putting up with the crappy job, right? Mm. And so it it twists, but it's it's basically making unilateral decisions about right and wrong and justice. Uh, mm. So the reason I call that out is, while I don't think I'm necessarily a vindictive person, I find myself doing little versions of this. Mm. And maybe maybe I could even, even now, like I'm, I'm almost starting to justify it as I talk about it. Like, it's probably <laughs> not so bad. But, <laughs> but say my wife and I get in a tiff and I really think I'm right. Mm. Well, then when like I'm out doing something, maybe I just stay out a little longer. Mm. Even though I know she's at home with the kids. Mm. Or maybe... Uh, I know she doesn't want, like, Walter getting screen time, but, you know, I'm burned about this conversation we had. So when I'm with him and I'm tired, we're going to watch a movie, even though we've agreed we wouldn't do that with him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they start to bubble up in corrosive ways, and now I'm creating an enemy in my own home. So for me, like, that is probably the most toxic thing I find myself dealing with, and you know, to, to your work, Zach, it is intensely solitary feeling Mm. like the nature of the moral licensing is that I'm doing it alone and by myself and I'm deciding what's right. And the moment, part of the reason I want to talk about now is like giving it airtime shines a light on it and it helps me cut out the hypocrisy in my own life. So, where it stems from, gosh, I could, I don't even know what I take it back to. It feels like it's always been a part of me. Maybe some of it's human nature. Uh, I think it is. The Happiness Hypothesis is a book that I'm reading right now, and they have a whole section in that book on on hypocrisy, the tit-for-tat game that all human beings play, and the law of reciprocity. This is, I mean, I do that. I sort of became aware of it too. I, I think we all do moral licensing to a certain extent because it's, it's the law of reciprocity is what allows us to live in a, in a civilized society. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. You slight mm-hmm. me, I slight you. And I do think that when I try to analyze it, like it, and part of the reason I started to try to justify it just now is like I don't think in a vacuum – like it's wrong, right? Like this is kind of the way there's a social contract. It talks about this exact thing in the book, the justification behind why we do it, the in a vacuum. Right. I'm writing it, I'm writing it down now. The happiness hypothesis. Yes. And it's just one section of the book, but they talk about this. Absolutely. This is very human. Everybody's doing it all the time. Dusty, it sounds like what you're getting at a little bit is that <clears throat> you recognize that this is a human behavior but you maybe find yourself weaponizing it, mm-hmm. you know, and using it as a reason to be spiteful. Right. Yes. And, uh, that that's where it goes from being a human behavior to something that you're saying, you know, could be a toxic behavior for you. Yeah. And I think to kind of loop it back into the sensitivity and what we've, we've discussed in the past time is like the more I become aware of, 
what motivates people and like what is the emotional underpinnings of people's behavior i think the the more devious i get with this kind of moral licensing because i kind of know if i get called out on it i'm going to be able to defend myself pretty pretty strongly and so i just think it is i think it is a treacherous area for me to keep an eye on if I want to be good to those I claim to care the most about. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for sharing, dude. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. Hey man, that was great. that's, that's why we come out here. That's right. All right. Uh, final segment of the podcast is recommendations. It can be absolutely anything, something you're watching, something you're reading, a piece of advice you would like to give people, um, a product you love. Just one thing that you would give to people listening that they might enjoy or benefit from. Tommy, what do you got this week? I mean, I would be remiss to not say you're not alone, right? I mean, I, I... Unlike you, Dusty, I'm about 95% of the way through. If, if we, if we had, if we had more time and maybe, maybe we'll have Zach back on and, and we'll focus more on meditation. Um, which I think, you know, as you'll get to, uh, he, he, uh, he highlighted as maybe the, you know, aside from, from therapy, maybe the second most important thing that, that you've changed or that you've, that you've made it. And, and that's something that for me, I, I know I need to do. I know there's value in it. I just have, I, I, I haven't done it. I just haven't done it. Um, but anyway, so I would say if while it is designed for college, 18 to 24 year olds, um, I, I don't know. I, 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 it was for me, it was kind of easy reading because I've, I've, I have done a lot of this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very aware of it and I, and that's why I liked it. But if you haven't, even if you're 40, this might really apply to you and it might also help you go back and process 18 year old you, or if you have a kid, you know, a kid going to high school or, or a brother or a friend or cousin, whatever, I don't think there's anything wrong with preemptively reading this book. Uh, you don't have to be in despair to read the book. So anyway, it's on Amazon. Um, and I, and I thought it was, a, it was, it's not, it's not overbearing. Like I'm, I'm reading body keeps the score. That's an overbearing book. It's a lot. This one, it's a good read and it lays the foundation. So anyway, I'll say that for sure. You're not alone by, by Zach Westerrick. He's on the podcast right now. Follow him. The other, the other thing I'll say, and, and usually it ends up being uh, whatever me and Annie are watching, if we really like it. Uh, but we started watching Mayor of Easttown on HBO Max. Mm. Ooh, I've, yeah, I've heard about this one. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, a, a murder mystery thriller. Um, and Kate Winslet does an, a fantastic outside of Philly accent. It's sort of like Philly, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, but for someone that's from the UK, it's pretty bomb. Um, yeah, you would know. I, yeah, hon, I would know. She starts talking like this. She's like, where's the, where's the thing out there? And it's like, Whoa, man, am I in Maryland? But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's good. I mean, it's, you know, it's like all these HBO and Netflix shows. It's like, it's like a movie every episode. And it's so good, and it's very intense. So, Maravie's town, and you're not alone. There you go. I love two, it. A two for tonight. 
Zach, I'll go and I'll let you bring us home on the recommendations. Okay. Uh, let me put my two cents in for You're Not Alone, even though I've obviously barely <laughs> read it. <laughs> you know I'm going to take a jab. Come on. I, I deserved it. I I was say after I prodded you, and I was like, do the work, Tommy. Then, <laughs> That's funny. And then, look, things got on top of me. All right. Uh, I, you, you guys aren't interested in my excuses, so I won't make them. <laughs> I, I didn't get there. But I will say this. Uh, everything Tommy said is dead on. It has been, in my view, delightfully, uh, delightfully to the point. And as someone who has done a ton of writing in my personal life, I think one of the most difficult things to do, and man, I would love to have a conversation, uh, particularly about the writing at a future date. Yeah. Um, One of the most difficult things to do is not try to prove how smart you are by complicating the process and the fact that because i i was i was definitely worried about that when i got into it Mm -hmm. and the fact that you took what is an incredibly complicated topic and made it something that like i'm moving through it and i was like that makes sense that makes sense that and i'm not getting hung up on the like i barely understand what he's talking about which would be so easy to do when like the names of these disorders like what I asked Tommy earlier, hey, what's EMDR even stand for? Mm-hmm. Like everything in this field is like hyper academia. Like, so I thought it was awesome, man. And I was really impressed with your skills as a writer. Uh, and, and let me tell you, when I do finish it, I'm going to blast it all over the gram and all over Tommy's face. <laughs> <laughs> Just to let you know, I did the work. I know. I know uh, you're going to get there. I love it. Uh, <laughs> my uh, my recommendation is, well, I'll also say, started Made for Love, Tommy, your recommendation from prior. Three yeah. episodes in, loving it. Isn't Another it, banger recommendation from Tommy the, Cooksey. The, the shock of the humor really gets you when Ray Romano comes in. It really gets <laughs> it really you. Because at first you're like, is this a sci-fi? And then you're like, this is definitely a comedy. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh that toss we've we've liked it uh my recommendation is uh another book that kind of got in the way of this one i'll be honest because i have book club tomorrow night Mm, i'm I'm accountable to two things (laughs) so i uh it's called the ruthless elimination of hurry and it's uh written by a former megachurch pastor and he is taking a very uh very Christian perspective on the need to slow down in order to have a more meaningful life. And it's Mm -hmm. a lot of the things you've kind of uh, touched on here, Zach, about like overburdening your work and being so performance oriented and um, just setting the wrong standards for success. And he gets into uh, some of the, gosh, I guess if you're coming from outside of, the belief system, you would consider them ancient practices Mm. of things like the Sabbath. But it's just like, take a day off Mm. every single week. Put your devices away at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. Order a big meal. 
step away from the TV and play a board game with each other. Spend time in like real human dialogue. Sleep in the next day. Mm. You know, like, and just the importance of not letting all the distractions consume your mind. And he gets into a lot of things. Like, I I think a lot of these things are analogs, meditation and prayer. Mm. They're not that different. Mm. So it's been uh, it's been an interesting uh, perspective. I have definitely enjoyed it. And if you're of a theological or Christian bent, I I think you'll find a ton of value in the way it unravels some of the complexities of modern life. So mm. the ruthless elimination of hurry. That's my recommendation. That's on the list. Very yeah, sounds, very down. interesting. All right, Zach, what do you got for us, man? Uh, and thank, I mean, geez, both of you gave me chills. So thank you. I mean, to, to get that compliment from two adults, you know, not like a green 18 year old hasn't seen much of the world. I really appreciate that. And I like really appreciate what you guys are trying to say. So I'll fill in the blank. It's a simple read. And the reason why is because I put myself back in Raleigh Zach and I needed a book that depressed anxious zach could get through yeah and so that was the point of the book so i really appreciate you all calling that out because that was the exact that was like when i sat down with my editor so dustin thank you for the compliment compliment on my writing but i give that all my credit to, to my editing team um like that was the main goal make this book digestible because i read too many books that were dragged down in the academia side of things where people were just trying to sound smart for their peers and not serve and help others. And I was like, that is not going to be this book. Yeah. Um, So thank you for that call out. Really appreciate that. Gave me chills. Um, I will say that my message is something that I definitely want to leave the audience with. And it has everything to do with the title of my book. You're not alone. What does that mean? Well, to me, it means two things. First of which, that there are millions of people in this country, millions of Americans, roughly 25% on an annual basis, 50% estimated by the CDC over the course of a lifetime, are going to experience some form of anxiety, depression, or thoughts of suicide. So you're not alone. You're not weird. You're not weak. You're not different for experiencing these symptoms. You're human. The second part of you're not alone gets into the health aspect. And this is something that we drilled into in the podcast, which is just there are thousands of healthcare providers that went and studied this. This is what they do day in and day out. They treat the brain. So go talk to somebody. Go talk to somebody. It's what Tommy talked about. It's what Dustin talked about. Share the same therapist. I don't care what it is. Go and talk to somebody because that's where where the growth happens. Um, so that I, I do want to leave people understanding that they're not alone. No matter where you're at right now, you could be at the lowest point like I was you could be somewhere in between. You're not alone. Um, a, a book that I will recommend is Think Like a Monk. And it has everything to do with mindfulness, meditation, and living a more fulfilling, um, service-driven life. I think one of the biggest components missing in this country that I actually think we once had because we were more of a, uh, a religious country a few generations ago is less around the concept of money for me, but instead 
service to others. I think we've become really, really focused on our careers, how money and experiences can make us happy. And we've lost sight of an ancient wisdom in terms of uh, how much happiness and fulfillment we can get through service to others. Um, and uh, that book touches on that. So that is what I would recommend. Ah, that's awesome. It it's reminds me of, uh, that is a banger. Three, Guys, three I, recommendations in one. <laughs> Guys, I got to say, I think we crushed this podcast. I feel really good about it. Yeah. Uh, it was, Zach, it was revitalizing to me to get to reconnect with you after a few years. And like everything you're saying rings so true with my personal experience. Mm. And I have really enjoyed following you on social media. Uh, I have already mentioned my how impressed I am with the book. I, I love what you're doing. Mm. Um, and I hope that we can have you on again down the road. Um, gosh, I, I feel like I feel like we only scratched the surface on some of the things that you have spent a long time in. Like me and Tommy are kind of in, like, you know, your first couple years of experience here. So, mm. uh, but this sort of commiserating around the topic is mm. enriching to me personally. So. Thanks a ton. Um, Tommy, the usual man. Thanks for being a friend. Thanks for being always, here. Always. Always. You know, I, I will say next time we share a therapist, we ought to like see about getting like a couple's rate. I think so. <laughs> it only makes sense. It I only love makes that. sense. Absolutely. Get the bundled package. Why not? Yeah. yeah. We, we probably got some stuff we could unpack between like, oh, well, here's, he keeps talking over me. <laughs> <laughs> No. Well, Zach, I, I also will say, man, hey, I, I appreciate it. I mean, we, we, we're almost two hours in, man. It doesn't feel like that at all. Um, I've never officially met you, and I feel like we're buds now. So I really appreciate you you know, spending the time, taking some time out of your afternoon, evening, and uh, hopefully one day we'll get to actually meet in person. That'd be great. Yes, I would love that. And cool. Zach, we'll wrap it here, man, but okay. send me your mailing address. I'm going to send you. I looks like we're lost podcast t-shirt so far only sent to guests of the pod, not even co-host Tommy Cooksey. <laughs> That's hilarious. Also, you guys sent me, I know that we got a cut, but you sent me a gift card. You're way too nice. Hey, your time is worth way more than that gift card. And it was just a small token for us to say, we understand that and we appreciate you. Absolutely. Classy. You two are two classy gentlemen. It's been an honor. Life, life, life and sales. Don't believe it. It's all show. <laughs> all right, brother. Good cool. talking to you, man. Take I, care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks good. a lot, Zach. Appreciate it, man. Dusty, yeah, it's great to catch you, you on the flip side. Enjoy See you guys. Brother. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. See you guys. Bye.